Hello, and welcome to the All Things Narrative Podcast, where we explore the relationships between the stories we love and the stories we live. I'm your host, Derek Hatch, and let's get started. What's up, everybody out there? I am so excited today because I am sitting down with somebody that we've just recently become acquainted, but I am just just so incredibly drawn to. He has so much wisdom and knowledge um, just about all things Judaism and the Bible. And I, I've learned a lot from him and just enjoyed our conversations. I actually got to go be on his uh, YouTube channel uh, just the week uh, leading up to New Year's Eve. And it was just a wonderful time uh, to get uh, to get to just connect with him and just, you know, he graciously let me come on and share my story. And we just had a lot of conversations. And now I kind of want to do the same thing for him as well. And so this is Jacob. Uh, is it Fatcherchi? Is that how you say your last name? Fatcherchi. Yeah. Fatcherchi. Perfect. And so I'm just honored to have you on here and just to uh, get to hear your story uh, as much or as little as you want to share. But welcome to the All Things Narrative Podcast. Thank you so much. Um, I plagiarize a lot of wisdom. I, I like to say that's not. Yeah, I, I, I like to. I like to say, I, 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 no matter how tall you are, you will never be as tall as somebody who stands on the shoulder of giants. Mm. And so, um, I, I am glad you. Uh, I have been able to plagiarize things you found wise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's. That's what I love about all these conversations that we have on the podcast with story is that story is such a an ancient and universal thing, you know? So when we talk about the the elements of story, when we talk about patterns and themes and all this stuff, we're not we're not reinventing the wheel. You know, we're not coming up with something brand new uh, in the 21st century. This is stuff that goes, it goes back like so, so far. And that's what, that's what I love about like people like Joseph Campbell that really, they, they write these great works that kind of help us to see the, this common language across space and time and cultures and different circumstances that there's just this Mm -hmm universality of storytelling. And so um, it's just great to to have someone on here who I know just appreciates stories. And you have a lot of great stories as well. So looking looking forward to hearing those. I, I, I love telling stories. And um, yeah, I guess my channel is... Um, so I, I don't like calling the Bible a book. I think the, bu- uh, the, li- the Bible is a library. Yeah, I, I say the same and, thing. And yeah, it's it. It has so many stories in it um, of of different types. Yeah, yeah. Uh, stories stories are how we understand things. I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's how we uh, it's how we make sense of the world and how we yeah. make sense of our place in it. So part of what we do on this podcast is we explore stories that inspire us, that influence us, um, whether it be in, you know, films or novels, uh, whether it be in something like the Bible. Uh, But today I actually want to hear your real life story uh, because I've gotten these like little glimmers and pieces of it. And I'm like, okay, I think there's, there's something 
here that is is very profound and inspiring, especially um, for someone like me who, you know, I've grown up here in America. I, in comparison, on and to just to be honest, you know, uh, in comparison with the world, it's 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 a very comfortable life in a lot of ways. Yeah. So so Jacob, take us back. Where does your story start? Where do you come from? And what what's kind of your origin story, if you will? Sure. Um, so my grandmother, her first language that she spoke to my father is Aramaic, mm. and. Her, her family is, um, she passed recently, but um, her family are one of the very few people who still speak Aramaic in the world as a first language. Um, so my family, uh, at least that section of it, has been living uh, on the rivers of Babylon mm. quite likely since the Babylonian captivity. Oh, so wow. over 2,000 years. Yeah. Um, wow. quite likely at, at, at least that community was really established when <laughs> that the, there was, uh, at least a thousand years ago. Um, yeah. that, and so that I, I was born in Iran and being Jewish in Iran. <laughs> so I was born about two years before the revolution mm. in Iran, the Islamic revolution. Okay. And um, the that precipitated the Iran-Iraq war, which was a very bloody, bloody war. Uh, I generally, while I am pretty open with um, the kinds of trauma that I uh, underwent as a child, mm -hmm. I actually usually don't talk about it with people yeah. because it's too much. Yep, like, I totally understand. Um, and so a lot of the very worst things that can happen to a child um, during a period of revolution. And so I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story. I okay. was walking down the street with my dad and um, I must've been only, I don't know, five or six years old. Mm -hmm. And in Tehran, the, houses all have very high walls mm -hmm. out to the street so that when you're walking down the street, you don't actually see any of the houses. You, uh, you only see walls okay? because, uh, because of privacy concerns, nobody should be looking into your home. Nobody should even see your garden really. Mm. And so it's very different from how the streets look here. And we were walking down the street and we got to a house that the wall, which usually provides privacy, had been bulldozed. Mm. And not only that, but the facade of their home had been bulldozed. Mm. So it kind of like when when you look at a dollhouse yeah. that has a cutaway. Yes. So... They had, uh, so somebody had bulldozed the actual facade of the, of the uh, thing as well. I mean, you have to understand how in a society like Persian society, this is, this is just pure humiliation. Wow. Right. Yeah. And um, I asked my dad, 
what was going on. And he just said, they're Baha'i. So the religious police um, in Iran, there isn't a lot of accountability. Um, there are people who do all kinds of things with their authority and uh, being Baha'i in Iran. So um, I have family who are Baha'i and that's, it's a um, religion that was established in Iran out of Islam mm -hmm. um, uh, some hundred years ago. And they're considered heretics okay. to Islam. Mm -hmm. And so um, in, in Iran, they technically have no legal protections. And so um, they also can't go to university because when you apply, you have to say which religion you are. Yeah. And there's only four choices, Christian, Zoroastrian, Jewish, or, or Muslim. Mm -hmm. And if you don't check one of the boxes, you don't get to go to college. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So um, actually, one of my cousins teaches an online university for people in Iran mm -hmm. um, who are Baha'i so that they can get a higher education. But there, um, there really was a lack of civilization in one of the oldest civilizations in the world mm. that when I came to the United States, I often envied my friends, their sort of naivete. When you see the police mm -hmm. in the United States, you may not have the greatest view of them, and, but it's not even comparable mm. to <clears throat> the type of abuse of authority that's just a given in Iran. Mm. Here in the United States, at the very least, if a policeman is is misbehaving, mm -hmm. there is a standard by which that is considered misbehavior. Yeah. Um, but my father, he was... Um, so the first time we, we tried to leave Iran, uh, we... We got caught and my father was um, arrested and there was a kind of trial where he didn't even have an attorney, mm. where uh, he was convicted of being a Zionist spy. Oh, wow. And, yeah. And we, we um, you know, my family, my, my mom and my grandmother were very, very concerned that he would be executed. And this was one of the many things that happened as a child. So when I came to the United States, um, I, I am very enthusiastically American. One of the uh, highlights of my life really was when I became a citizen of the United States. Mm. And I have a deep appreciation for just the level of civilization that a lot of us take for granted. Yeah. And, and I mean, anybody who's paying attention to the situation in Iran right now, it's, it's just wild. It's just mm -hmm. wild. I don't even know what, what to say. Um, yeah. yeah. Can I, can I, so I gotta, 
there, there's a lot there to, to kind of dig into and unpack. So help us, um, just for any one of us who might not know, so you're Jewish and you're living in Iran, you're growing up in Iran. What, uh, what's like, uh, hum, what's the percentage of the population in Iran that's Jewish? Way under 1%. Okay. So, so like um, the minority of the minority of the minority, basically. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, as you're on the heels of this Islamic revolution and that's all taking place, because you, you guys have been there for a long, long time, many, many generations. So were, what, was there a change in how your family was looked at, how you were treated, um, in, in just what day-to-day life was like? Yeah, so under the Shah and um, the first Shah, Pahlavi Shah was um, about 100 years ago, uh, Reza Shah. And during World War II, uh, actually, so the name Iran, mm-hmm. uh, Iran used to go by Persia. Right. But during World War II, they actually decided to be known internationally as Iran, kind of to curry favor with the Nazis. Mm. Um, that was that was a deliberate consideration that they had in in starting to use the word Iran. Uh, so being like the name Aryan is actually a very common name in Iran. Oh, interesting. Because yeah, being like. Um, Iran is is very uh, proud of its Aryan heritage, and there, there's nothing wrong with that. It's it's not anything like um, the the type of Aryan heritage that that well, it, they didn't even have the have an Ary, Aryan heritage really when during World War II for, with the Nazis. Mm-hmm. But so when the British and the Russians occupied Iran mm-hmm. during World War II. They deposed the the Shah, sent him into exile, and chose one of his sons to kind of be a puppet. Yeah. Um, and this is Muhammad Shah. Okay. And he was very, very Western. Mm-hmm. And he tried to be very Western. And he tried, um, in a sense, to be liberal. Okay. But... So a lot of people, when they look at the hijab and women wearing a veil, Mm -hmm. it is so highly politicized in Iran, partially because during the time of Reza Shah and Muhammad Shah, there was an attempt to secularize, Mm -hmm. which included not just allowing women to walk around without a veil, Mm -hmm. but actually prohibiting it in public buildings. And there is, was apparently a time when um, they would force men. uh, They would not give paychecks to men uh, until their wives came unveiled to pick them up. Oh, wow. Wow. It's complete change. Yeah. It, it, right. And, and so there was, there was a, there was a reaction. So the Islamic revolution, there was a pendulum swing. Right. In fact, there is a reason why 
the veil is so um, is so uh, politicized in Iran, and many people actually see it as a sort of flag of independence and being um, against Western <coughs> Western values. Yeah, and that's why it is such a big issue. Mm-hmm. Like, why is everybody talking about the veil? You know, in the United States, a woman can decide to wear a veil or not. Yeah. In Iran, um, there was a lot of pressure for women not to wear the veil. And then it was there was legally required the legal requirement. I remember my sister as a little kid being forced to be veiled to go to school. And it's like uh, under the Shah, that was never required of Jews and Muslim uh, and Christians mm-hmm. and Zoroastrians. It was it was a Muslim thing that some Muslims decided to do. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> underneath the Islamic uh, Republic, it became compulsory on all women, including little girls, to wear to wear the veil. Yeah, and is there any hostility that you're experiencing? Uh well. I mean, there there definitely was um, this idea of so Iran and basically all the Muslim countries in the Middle East use um, Zionism as a scapegoat. Okay. So it's um, you know when things are going very badly in Iran, uh, suddenly it it becomes a huge focus what's going on in Israel. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it's really an attempt to distract things through anti-Semitism. And uh, I think, I think that was part of, for example, my father was convicted of being a Zionist spy. It's like, what does that even mean? And mm-hmm. they apparently convicted some two to 3,000 people, in, including a friend of mine who was 14 years old of being a Zionist spy. Wow. So, you know, that, that scapegoat mechanism. Yes. And, um, I, I mean, I have to say, there is an ongoing genocide of Christians in Muslim countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and so also the Muslims and uh, I mean, the, the Jews and the Christians. Yeah, there, there is a sense of separateness and, and blame and it wasn't everybody. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's not everybody, but Again, when when you're living in a society that doesn't that the rules aren't well known, mm-hmm. and that's part of what happened with the revolution, mm-hmm. right? Uh, some of my family these days they they tell me, oh, you just remember Iran during the revolution? Things have really quieted down, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I suppose that's that's possible, but like. Anytime you have a revolution, you have everything that was going on, including the war, the Iran-Iraq war um, was brutal, Mm -hmm. absolutely brutal and a very long war. 
uh, it it just it throws all of society into upheaval. Yeah, yeah, and it, I am sure, like even today, the effects are still being felt of of everything that happened decades ago. So how did you how did you get out, and how old were you when you got out? I was um, six, going on seven. Oh, wow! So the first time we tried to leave, we tried um, hiring coyotes, and that didn't work out. And the second time, so in Iran, um, children ha- share a passport with their mother, mm-hmm. and um, we were my apparently my parents bribed somebody to get a passport for my mom, mm-hmm. and we were able to leave um, Iran just on, on an airplane. Oh, wow. I remember, yeah, I remember my, my parents, because I was so young, they were afraid I would say something. So they didn't tell me what was going on until basically the day we were going to the airport. Wow. They suddenly told me, oh, we're going to the airport and yeah. we're going to, and my my parents had to basically sit me down and um because we were going to get questioned mm-hmm. as as we're leaving you know there's a search there's uh and so my parents had to sit me down and kind of like train me um they basically said just just don't say anything you know when people ask you questions just 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 not don't say anything. Okay. Um, and you know, because I was, I was only six. Right. Right. And I, and I remember the process of like going through the search, you know, and, mm. and go, getting on that airplane, um, to, to Turkey, which, which is where we applied for, um, we applied for asylum mm-hmm. and, it took about eight months for the asylum process mm-hmm. before we got uh, to the United States. And once we got to the United States, then my father <laughs> also, he, again, he did the coyote thing. He actually walked for three days. Um, they would, they would sleep during the days and walk during the nights. And so there's a hilly portion of Iran between Turkey and, and Iran where he walked, um, walked past it. So he, he got out at a different time than you. Yes. Okay. What was it? Uh, like how long after you guys? So he, he left as soon as we were faced, uh, safely in the, in the United States. Um, and so he showed up, uh, he ended up coming here, I believe like, four or five months after we did. Okay. So you got to Turkey and how long were you in Turkey before you got to the United States? So six months in Turkey. And then, uh, we got, um, accepted to a refugee program, which took us to Italy Mm -hmm. and we were in Italy for two months and then we came to the United States. Okay. Now you're in Turkey and you're in this period of waiting. Was the United States always the end goal to get to? Well, I mean, the question was United States somewhere else. Apparently, uh, we have some family in Canada, and mm. there was a time when it was looking like we were going to go to Canada, and I sometimes wonder like how different my life would have been. Sure. Um, 
There was also possibly the option of going to Israel, but a lot of our family had come to the United States. Uh, Los Angeles has a very large expatriate um, population. Mm. of uh, So like a lot of the Persian Jewish community ended up moving to Los Angeles. Okay. Uh, partially because a lot of those people moved to Los Angeles before like there was a community that came before the revolution. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, you know, kind of people bringing family over yeah. and um, yeah. So Los Angeles, I mean, I'm, I live not very far, far from uh, uh, little Tehran. So, so you had family that was here um, already. Yeah. And so, I mean, when you were bef- before you even got here, like, when you're in Turkey, you're in a new country for six months. You just found out as you were like getting ready to come over here that, oh, hey, by the way, we're not going back. So if you can recall, like what was going on in your six-year-old mind uh, while, while you were there? Well, I mean, it, it, was, a, it was a scary time Partially because as children, we look <laughs> towards our parents. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, my, my, my father wasn't there and my mom was very worried because we only had the money that she was able to bring out with mm-hmm. us until we got accepted into the refugee program. So <clears throat> my mom was very concerned and, was was trying to save as much money as possible while we were in Turkey. When we finally got to um, Rome, mm-hmm. uh, it was a lot more relaxed because my mom then didn't have to worry about running out of money. Okay. And and so it we we ended up actually touring uh, a lot while those two months we were, we were in Rome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you get to LA and yeah. I'll tell you another story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, um, Persian culture, there's this thing called tarof, which is kind of like a polite negotiation okay. when you go to somebody's house. Mm-hmm. And so when somebody offers you something, you're supposed to say no, and then they offer it again, and you're supposed to say no, and then, you know, so um, it's, it's, it's like this social dance okay. that you go through. And when we came to Los Angeles, one of my dad's aunts, um, we went over to her house, mm-hmm. and she had been living in the United States for a very long time. Okay. She, <laughs> she said, she brought out a tray of cookies okay. and she said, this is America. We don't do taro. I'm going to leave this on the table. <laughs> if you want, yeah. you're going to take, if you don't take, I'm not going to, I'm not going to force it on you mm-hmm. and you're not going to get any. Mm-hmm. And that's all she said. Yeah. And you know, six-year-old me and eight-year-old my sister didn't know how to take that. Yeah. And we're sitting there with that tray of cookies there. And, of course, we didn't take any. 
because it was, it's like she's supposed to offer, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and she's supposed to do this taro thing. And that was a lesson that I really learned about the United States. Like just sitting there and then when we left, it was like, oh, if if she really meant it, if I don't take the cookie, I wasn't going to get a cookie. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Were were there any other sort of kind of cultural things that were maybe surprising or shocking to you um, in those first days, weeks, months that you were here? Well, one of the things that was actually most shocking, um, we went to the grocery store Mm -hmm. and the oranges didn't have any dirt on them. Oh, and it was like, yeah. and we're, we're looking at the supermarket and it's like nothing I had ever seen, right? When you go to the green grocers in, in Iran, certainly, and even in Europe. Mm-hmm. So there's a butcher shop and there's a green grocer and there's, a, you know, there's all these small shops. Yeah. And when you go to the green grocer, like the green grocer doesn't spend his time like polishing the the, <laughs> the oranges sure. the way supermarkets do in the United States. And, um, you know, the, the fact that people would buy individual oranges as opposed to, like, buying them by the, by the pound, mm-hmm. there was a lot of – there were a lot of things which were very different between Iran and, and the United States. I mean – the culture shock was was huge. Yeah. So I mean, I, I can't even enumerate all of them. And but what, uh, what, it was a different lifestyle. What what year was it that you got here? Nineteen eighty five. Nineteen eighty five. Okay. Was there anything? Because um, because you mentioned earlier that there was kind of like a secularization kind of trying to happen over there in Iran. So were there mm-hmm. any things that like? you kind of got a little taste of that were Western while you were in Iran, but then you came to America and you kind of saw the full extent of. Well, um, I remember, so the, the attempts to Westernize were before the revolution. So I was only two years old when the revolution happened. So VCRs were considered contraband in Iran. Oh, interesting. And videos and, and things were, were, you black market, right? Wow. So supposedly backgammon was considered bad, which is funny because it, it's like a Persian tradition <laughs> because people would gamble on it. Yeah. And so it was it was prohibited in as gambling. Mm-hmm. And um VCRs, because you know, the videos, well, I guess it wasn't so much the VCR itself, because if if you had allowed you know, the type of things that were allowed, mm-hmm. that's fine. But I remember in Iran watching a lot of Benny Hinn because, oh, interesting. Um, I, because Benny Hinn has a lot of, you know, things that it doesn't matter. You, you just watch him running around doing things. There was, there, uh, there's a lot of physical comedy. Yeah. Um, and I remember we used to watch a lot of Bollywood stuff mm-hmm. in, in Iran, but all of this was, was kind of contraband. Mm -hmm. And then 
actually going to movie theaters mm. and the like what was on the televisions in the United States and <laughs> in Europe, like it was completely different. And I, I have to say, I almost think it was, I, I think there was a problem with me uh, personally as a child, like watching a lot of, you know, not adult adult movies, but movies that weren't appropriate for my age because um my parents really didn't didn't understand what was i I mean especially before my dad got got here but once my dad got here he he started um you know regulating what what we were watching and bedtimes and stuff Mm -hmm. but those first few months you know uh my mom wasn't sure what to do with it. Like this is just television and people are watching television, you know? Yeah. And so it's, it's a very different type of society where you have to have parental parental controls sure. than one where you don't. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's, I mean, ever since then it's just gotten crazier and crazier, right? E- well, yeah, to some extent, I guess. Yeah, especially with the internet. Yeah, we've we've talked a little bit about what it was like for you being, you know, coming from Iran and being here in America. What was it like cultivating, you know, and growing up in the Jewish faith um, in LA? You know, as your family's trying to start again. Yeah. So um, I actually think part of my Jewish identity and personally being more attached to Judaism um, was in reaction to um, just, I guess, kind of the freedom in the United States. Yeah. You know, um, American identity lets you be what kind, whatever kind of American you want. Mm-hmm. And So you have to ask yourself, what kind of American do you want to be? And so I got very, very involved in in Judaism and I became very observant to the point where my parents were like, they were very uh, unhappy with with me being as observant of Jewish law as I was. Mm, Interesting. Um, And I, I think... Well, first of all, that came as a total surprise to me. Mm-hmm. I never, I never anticipated it. Um, but second, I think for them, there was an association with between religion and the Islamic Revolution mm-hmm. and um, religious extremism um, that they they would just apply a across the board and what I'm telling my parents is like no you can't like as an extreme Jew like I'm not gonna go and do a suicide bombing yeah yeah. I'm I'm gonna spend a lot of time studying Talmud Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) yeah so so it was definitely not what they were maybe expecting you know they definitely not my my father actually told me so 
after college, I went to Israel um, to to study at a yeshiva, mm-hmm. and my parents came and visited me. And my dad told me that <clears throat> when we had first came to the United States, um, one of the local, <coughs> excuse me, Jewish schools had offered free tuition, mm-hmm. and he had gone and visited the school, and he had seen the kids all wearing yarmulkes mm-hmm. and seats, which are the the fringes that they wear, yeah. and running around. And he said he decided um, that's not what I want for my son. Mm. And when he was saying this, like I was in Jerusalem at a religious school wearing a yarmulke and tzitzit, <laughs> and you know, for him, it was kind of like, I guess it wasn't up to me. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like you found your way there no matter what, even though he wasn't, you know, (laughs) wanting you to go in that direction. Yeah. That's interesting. So in college you were, you were studying a lot. It sounds like. Um, I I learned a lot about Judaism in college, but you have to also understand that we didn't have the same resources then that everybody has now, mm, right? Yeah. So these days, you know, there are websites like Safaria yep. and Chabad.org, and like there's so much about Judaism that's freely available yeah. that just did not exist. Mm-hmm. And um, I was I was trying to learn more about Judaism, but I was also, you know, <clears throat> in a particular environment. Mm-hmm. There weren't really um, so when I went uh, to USC in undergrad, mm-hmm. there wasn't there weren't um, there wasn't an Orthodox rabbi at all, and I was one of the few students who started wearing a yarmulke on on campus. Mm -hmm. And um, there's actually like one of my claim to fame is the Los Angeles Jewish Journal. When um, my rabbi who ended up opening uh, the only Orthodox synagogue at USC, Mm -hmm. when they were doing an article about it, they, they started off the article with me talking about how, I had been, um, I was riding my bike on Fraternity Row, and I was wearing a yarmulke, mm-hmm. and a drunk frat guy at at um, on top of one of the Jewish frats yeah. um, yelled out, "Look, there's a Jew!" <laughs> it was it was just that strange Interesting. to see somebody wearing a yarmulke wow. at at USC at the time. Yeah. This was 1996, 97. Yeah. Um, and now it's just so much more common, mm. but it wasn't something that you really saw. Yeah. So, you know, as you've experienced different things in different places, mm-hmm. you've you know, you've lived in Iran, you were in Turkey, you were in uh, Rome. Uh, it sounds like you were in, did you, did I hear you say that you were in Jerusalem as well? Uh, so after college, after undergrad, yeah. um, I went, I went to a year, um, 
to to studying in yeshiva in Jerusalem. Okay, yeah, and then uh, and then of course L.A. where you are now. As you've, you know, as you've moved in these different seasons in these different places, have there been any um, particular stories that have really sustained you um, through all these changes that have really just that you've held on to that have been particularly meaningful to you, um, just as you've been learning how to cultivate and explore uh, and enter into further the, your Jewish identity within the midst of so much change. So I'll tell you my favorite story that um, a rabbi once told and just stuck with me. Yeah. And uh, I've told you this story many times <laughs> already. But um, there's a young man who learns of a fruit yeah. that is... Oh, well, this is a good one. Has, yeah, that has a taste unlike anything he he has ever tasted before. Yeah. And he decides that he's going to go out in search of, of this fruit. And so he goes to city after city, wise man after wise man, hermits, nomads. He, he goes and he spends basically his entire life on this search yeah. for a for that tree. And um, eventually he actually arrives at the tree and there's a fruit there and he takes it and he tastes it and he feels that all those years of his life mm. that now he's an old man were worth everything he went through to get there. Yeah. And while while he's savoring that fruit, a little child walks up to the tree and grabs a, fr- uh, a fruit and starts eating it. And he wonders, he says to the child, how'd you get here so young? I spent all my life mm. trying to get here. Yeah. And the child says, I was born here. And for me, that's really meaningful because I think all of us have a journey from where we were born to where we will end up. And there are a lot of things I wish I had known when I was younger that I try to impart to my nephews, for example. I tell them an intelligent man learns from his mistakes. A wise man learns from other people's mistakes. It's really nice to be that child who was born at the foot of that tree. But then the question becomes, what becomes your adventure? Yeah. Right? What, What are you going to spend your life doing? And can the fruit tastes as sweet to that child as it does to the man who spent his whole life getting there. I love that story. I've heard you tell it a couple times and it just... It, it connects with me so well because, you know, you, you know quite a bit of my story now and you know that, that that's been a lot of my journey too is not growing up, 
um, with a lot of the things that are important to me, particularly um, when it comes to God and faith, and then coming to find that and and go through just a, sometimes a really painful journey um, to get to where some people just that that's their starting place, you know. Like I think I'm like my wife is one of those people that she she was the kid there at the tree, you know. She had a very good foundation uh, in those things at a young age, so. So, so yeah, where, where are you, where are you at now? So what, what, what is, uh, you know, you're, I know you're still living in LA, but what, what's this chapter of your story that you're in like for you now? So, um, I had a lot of difficulty in living an Orthodox Jewish lifestyle, Mm -hmm. Um, and maintaining a relationship with my family and Mm -hmm. making everything work. And there were several things that at, at one point I decided, okay, this, this is not what God intended for me. Mm. And I didn't know what God intended for me. And so I dropped basically all Jewish advert, um, all Jewish uh, observance completely. Oh wow! And yeah, I I decided, you know what? I'm I'm just going to concentrate on other things. I'm going to concentrate on building my life, on being healthy, and and all things like that. And so I I went on this journey of self improvement, yeah, which led me to. Um, Jordan Peterson. Mm, mm, yep. Who uh and it it was it wasn't because of anything religious. It mm. was because you know, he was this psychologist who was so I was getting involved because of the psychological community. Yeah. The funny thing was that well, a lot of people were were just embarking on a journey of discovery of the Bible and mm-hmm. uh, religion in general. Yeah. And I found myself in this place where <clears throat> I never would be, you know, um, I can, I can guarantee you that if I had the life that I thought I was going to make for myself, mm-hmm. I would not be having this conversation with you. Yeah. Um, I would not have my YouTube channel or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And I found myself in a place, um, I kind of feel like Jonah, you know, yeah. that this this fish swallowed me up and and took me somewhere I didn't want to go wow. and fat me out. Yeah. And that's that's kind of where I am right now is for the last two, three years, I have been, I've become kind of a resource about theology and Hebrew and Judaism and everything around that in ways I never, I never imagined I would become. And especially while there are some Jews in this little corner of the internet, Mm -hmm. I'm making good friends with my with Catholic priests and mm-hmm. Eastern Orthodox priests yeah. and uh, <laughs> Calvinist pastors <laughs> and 
uh, all these people that, frankly, um, you know, Judaism is is rather insular. Mm-hmm. We don't uh, we don't evangelize. We don't um, we don't believe in disrupting other people's religious journeys, mm-hmm. uh, and we believe uh, that that's part of having faith in God is recognizing that God himself is guiding other people, um, you know, in our communities, we are involved in with our own community and building our religious faith within Judaism. But there really has not been until very recently Mm -hmm. um, any type of, Jewish resources available to Gentiles. Right. And I've kind of, now I find myself at the forefront of that. Yeah. And that's how I found you. And that's, that's <laughs> why I reached out to you in the first place was I, I sensed that you would be approachable, that you would be somebody that as someone who was non-Jewish and has some Jewish ancestry and had a lot of questions about that, that I could ask it, you know, and not feel weird about it. Um, which is just awesome. Cause I was looking for that for a long time. So it sounds like there's just a really unique calling that you have right now. And that, uh, I mean, would that be a fair way to put it? I, I hope so. I hope so. You know, I, I sometimes wonder if, if I'm not kind of kidding myself by saying that, you know, I, even though I don't live an observant Jewish lifestyle, mm-hmm. um, I am making Torah available to including certainly Jews mm-hmm. who um, otherwise would not have access, but also uh, Noahides, mm-hmm. you know, um, there's, the Noahide movement, which so it's it's really crazy trying to explain it even to other Jews. Yeah, um, a Noahide is an Orthodox Jewish Gentile, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like that sounds like an oxymoron, yeah. and it kind of does mm-hmm. because um, before Christianity, there were uh, we know there were Gentiles who believed in the God of Israel without wanting to join the community of Israel. Right. Well, you had, um, I know some people have called them, what is it? God fearers or something like that. God fearers. And and that's, that's how it's referred to in, in, in the book of Acts, I believe. Yeah. And there's even, isn't there even like in the temple was in there like a court of the Gentiles where they could be. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So Judaism, I mean, I, I have to say Judaism has always been a universal religion. We believe that there is one God and he's the God of all people. That doesn't mean everybody needs to be Jewish. And in fact, it means most people will not be Jewish. Mm. Um, it, it actually says that in Deuteronomy. It says you, you are um, a small nation. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, we have this concept of Israel <coughs> as a nation of priests, yeah. but it was never an attempt to impose Judaism on other people. Mm-hmm. And um, so basically we, we were, we didn't bother uh, 
other people. Mm-hmm. Well, now, um, so 50 years ago, there were no Noah hides. Mm-hmm. Um, 2000 years ago, there were Noah hides. 50 years ago, bet- between the advent of Christianity and the, the 1970s, mm-hmm. Basically, like being a Noahide was not an option mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, because who would who would want to be a, <laughs> a Gentile whose religion is Judaism? Mm-hmm. But now um, there are estimates. The best estimates we have are there are 100,000 Noahides. Wow. And when when you consider that if you're very generous as to the Orthodox Jewish population in the world, it's like 2 million. Yeah. You're, you're talking about a growing population that's getting to be as large, if not larger than the number of Jews who are observant of Orthodox Judaism. You know, most, most uh, Jews in the United States, um, they they go to reform and conservative synagogues Mm -hmm. and yeah it's it's just become a very strange place to be to be guided trying to guide people who come for uh with questions about judaism that judaism unfortunately that you know the rabbis have not been discussing the implications, the practical implications of what it means to be an Orthodox Jewish Gentile. Yeah. Well, why this, and, this, this might be a loaded question, but why do you think this is happening like all of a sudden in the last 50 years? I, I have to say, I always, I always turn to um, that verse in Zechariah, mm. which says 70 men I mean, 10 men of each nation will grab a Jew by the fringes of mm-hmm. uh, his garment and say, uh, we have heard God is with all of you. We want to go with you. Wow. And in my life, I am seeing that being fulfilled. Yeah. I, um, one of the rabbis um, who is very prominent in this, in this field. Mm -hmm. Um, he, he says he, um, he receives emails on a daily basis. Mm. People saying, rabbi, I just want to hold on to your tzitzis, right? I just want to hold on to the garment, the corner of your garment, Mm. referencing that verse. Right. Right. So uh, he actually, so I'll tell you another story. Um, there's a monastery not too far from um, his name is Rabbi Skoback. He lives in Canada. He's one of the few rabbis who are very involved in, in the Noahide movement. And so he, uh, he got this call from a monk in a cloistered monastery. Mm -hmm. So a cloistered monastery basically are people who shut themselves off from the world. Yeah. They they go into this monastery and rarely leave it, rarely talk to anybody uh, unless people come visit 
the monks, yeah. right? <clears throat> and he gets a call from a monk in one of these monasteries who says, Rabbi, I have to see you. Mm. <laughs> Rabbi Scobas. Wow. Um, what? <laughs> and and um, so he, he, he went and he, he, he's like, the, the, yeah, the monk said, I, I can't talk on the phone. I, I need you to come visit me wow. at the monastery. And so he goes and he visits this monk in his cell in a, in a cloistered monastery. And um, he says, I want, I want to become Jewish. Wow. <laughs> like, and Rabbi Skovac is like, why? And he says, because we recite the entirety of the book of Psalms every day mm -hmm. at, at this monastery. Yeah. And the longest chapter in, um, in the entirety of, of the Bible is what's called an eightfold acrostic. Is that, uh, so Psalm, is that Psalm 119? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So an eightfold acrostic. So acrostic poems in Hebrew are um, poems that start with a letter of the alphabet. Yeah. Right. So, you know, first one starts with A, first B, then B, then C, then D, right? <clears throat> the equivalent in Hebrew. And um, Psalm 119 is an eightfold acrostic. So 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and it's 176 pages, the uh, verses. Yeah. And all of these verses are about how beautiful God's law is and how it you know, it improves you and your life and everything. Mm -hmm. And um, he said, I, I, I just read it over and over and over again. And I asked myself, why aren't I keeping them? Yeah. Wow. Wow. So when you, when you hear about deep stories like this and you kind of look at what's going on, because I feel like I, I just even reflecting in the last month, it's, it's been interesting to see on the one hand, there's been like, I, I'm hearing more about anti-Semitism uh, happening like in the media. I mean, there's the whole Kanye West thing and just just other circumstances as well. And then on the other side, I think about like um, my kindergarten, you know, daughter is learning Hanukkah songs in elementary school, which that was not a thing at all when I was in school, you know? Um, and so it's like, I'm seeing like, uh, like it's something interesting happening, um, just culturally. So I, I, what, what do you kind of see like in terms of, um, just here in America, in the West in general, the, our relationship with, uh, Judaism? I should give a warning, which, a lot of people find surprising, which is philosemitism, which is a love of Jews as Jews, mm -hmm. is a form of anti-Semitism. Mm, interesting, yeah. <laughs> because it fetishizes Jews, right? Um, there are a lot of Jewish people who unfortunately are not very good people. Mm. 
there are a lot of Jewish people who are amazingly good people, yeah. right? And when you talk about the Jews, mm. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, there was a model who got in, into trouble for saying something anti-Semitic, and she tweeted out, "I love the Jews," and it's like, really, you love the Jews? Have you have you met <laughs> like the Jews? That there are there are all kinds of Jews in the world, yeah. um, and and so I think part of the rise in anti-Semitism has come from an unfortunate. Um, so I think postmodernism mm-hmm. has taught at least some people, especially people who are involved in critical race theory. Mm-hmm and similar critical theories to view people as only their various identities. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Jacob is a Jew and Jacob is an American and Jacob is a Persian and Jacob is. And the the fact is Jacob is a person. Yeah. Right. Yes. And, um, Wherever you go, you're going to find out that all the people there are human beings. Mm. And that's one of the most disappointing things you can ever discover. <laughs> because you, you, you try, you go on these pilgrimages, right? And, yeah. and you can't, Israel was beautiful and I loved so much of it, mm-hmm. but even in the yeshivas where people were trying to live holy life lives and concentrating, I mean, really, really concentrating on improving themselves and making themselves better people. Mm -hmm. They were still people. Yeah. And so I think anytime we view people as representatives of others, Mm -hmm. Anytime we give credence to these ideas that a human being is simply a result of the systems that produce them as opposed, you know, in this mechanistic view, as opposed to seeing individual human beings as individual people, you, you actually, that's why you're seeing both more philosemitism and more anti-Semitism. Mm. Um, and I think just in general, we're seeing a lot more racism because yeah. a lot of people, people are deliberately, um, deliberately being racist in the name of being anti-racist. Yeah. And it's, it's, they're just flips, flips, you know, it's, it's wrong. It's silly to say I don't see race. Obviously, when I came to the United States and I saw the first black person, it was it was different than what I had experienced. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But if I see that person as merely a representative of um, the African American community, mm-hmm. uh, I. I am denying that person's story, yes. that person's individual life, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, preaching. And 
I, I, I have gotten to know lots and lots of different people from different backgrounds. Um, and I was, I was just speaking yesterday to somebody who's a Latino uh, minister. Mm-hmm. And he said, um, yeah, the, these people gave me uh, a grant to start a church. And because I am Latino, yeah. they just assumed that I agree with a lot of the woke things, mm-hmm. not understanding that, um, no, actually, you know, I'm, I am one person with, um, and, and this, this has become a common thing for people to assume, um, that, for example, you know, Latinos would be, um, like the term Latinx. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they hate it. Or Indian, American Indians, right? A lot of people want to say Native Americans because they want to be um, kind and, you know, and and that's all nice and good. But American Indians prefer the term Indian. Mm. And so if it's about what you wanting to be nice without actually caring. Okay. I'll tell one last story. A rabbi walks into a cafeteria and he sees one of the students there gorging himself on fish. Mm. And, you know, he's, he's just eating away at all this fish Mm -hmm. and he turns and he goes to the student and he says, what are you doing? And the student says, I can't help myself. I love fish. Mm. And the rabbi says, no, you don't love fish. If you loved fish, you would buy an aquarium. Mm. You love eating fish. You love how fish makes you feel. Yeah. And you love yourself with the fish wow right yes and if if we're using other people to love ourselves in a narcissistic way Mm -hmm. as opposed to genuinely seeing what asking that person what do they want what do they need right then then we're we're just being narcissistic wow and that's something that you just, uh, you're not going to hear a lot of people own up to right now. <laughs> you know, so, oh, but that's, that's good. That's good. And these are like little, uh, it's like little parables, you know, that have so much weight in, in what you're sharing. So, yeah, yeah, well, that's good. I, I love that. The last question that that I've just kind of been thinking about, I ask it to a lot of my guests, is if we were using this conversation as a basis for writing a book about your life, you know, like maybe you get a chance to write your autobiography, what would the title be and why? Good question. Um... 
I have been um, working on a communal organization and getting it put together. Yeah. And we, the, the question became what to name it. Mm -hmm. And I decided to name it Em um, Habanim Smecha, the joyful mother of children. Mm. Comes from a verse in the Bible. Um, I don't remember the, the Hebrew of the entire verse off the top of my head, but it says um, the barren woman became the joyful mother of children. Hallelujah. Mm. And you know, I, I never imagined 10, 20 years ago, certainly, um, and certainly not 30 years ago, that I would not be married, I would not have children. Um, but my life has, has taken a different route. Mm -hmm. And it's born fruit of the mother of children that's that's a reference to the well, you the Shekhinah, you would you would call it the holy spirit mm -hmm. in judaism mm -hmm. right and the fruits of the spirit um it's i i would say in in my story when the the fruit that i was that i've been looking for the tree that I have found mm -hmm. is very, very different from anything I imagined. Yeah. But the the fruits are are very are sweet. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like uh that's what good stories are made of though, is is finding the unexpected and us growing into who we're meant to be. In, in that journey. Yeah. Yeah. A, a, a story that doesn't have an arc that we don't learn. So one of the big differences between uh, what Judaism teaches and what a lot of Christianity, at least in the United States teaches mm -hmm. is there is this idea of getting saved. Right. Yeah. And, that that's the most important thing, mm. right? But, and, you know, Constantine waited until his deathbed to get baptized mm -hmm. because um, there was this idea some people had, which was um, baptism would remove all your sins from before you got baptized, but not after. Oh, interesting. And yeah, he 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 had some sinning to do, and so he, he was <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> to say the least, uh, uh, and but you know the the Jewish idea is that life exists in order to teach us a lesson to help us know God and turn towards God yeah. and walk towards God, mm -hmm. and. So there isn't, it's, religion shouldn't be a destination. It should be a path. Yeah. Um, and 
in, in fact, you know, when, when you are turning towards an infinite God and you are a finite person, you're never going to reach God because he is infinite, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but you can walk closer and closer. And that's, that's why what, so the Mishnah says, um, and this is a famous section of the Mishnah called sayings of the fathers. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it says better is, um, and an hour in the world to come than this entire life and better is an hour of repentance in this life than the entire world to come. Oh, interesting. Because the world to come when that veil is going to be taken off from our eyes and um, like it says, the knowledge of God will be uh, will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. Mm-hmm. Um, at that point, we don't have the opportunity to do the type of work on ourselves. There, there, there will not be learning, right? Yeah. And that's that's one of the things. I mean, Jeremiah says about, um, I will make make with you, I would translate, a renewed covenant. Mm -hmm. And it says um, what that would be, that it would be inscribed on your hearts, uh, on everyone from the least to the greatest. But it gives a detail there that a lot of, I I think especially Christians, um, gloss over. It says... And no one shall have to teach his brother to know God. Yeah, yes. Uh, And so when we look forward to the world to come, the messianic era, yes, it, it will be great and it will be beautiful, but it will also be a time when there's nothing more to learn. Mm. And we live <clears throat> this life. We are walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Mm-hmm. Um, and in order for us to learn and grow and become better than we were. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what it's all about at the end of the day you know, is we talk about this a lot on this podcast as well. It's just, you know, what are, what are we doing right here and right now, you know, and what would it look like if we viewed our lives through that lens of story? And we know that characters and stories are meant to be dynamic. They are meant to change and transform and grow as they go through the journey. And so what are we doing uh, to be intentional about that? Are we willing to undergo such a process and such a journey as painful as it might be at times to go through the valley of the shadow of death. So I would love to have you back on sometime, Jacob, to actually just kind of talk about, you know, the Hebrew Bible and to talk about, you know, for our listeners, just a lot of the 
the rich depth of what you know about it. And so if people do want to get more connected with you, where can they find you? I have a YouTube channel, excuse me. It's just my last name. Um, you can, you can find my details, my, you can find my cell phone number just by Googling my last name. So, um, I, I am, I am a pretty open and available person. Um, and so, um, I invite anybody who's interested. I have, um, just chatting live streams on my channel, um, on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. And, People, people are welcome to just drop in where we have a weekly Bible study on Wednesdays uh, now mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, we, we talk about whatever people want to talk about yeah. and anybody can drop in. Yeah. Well, and you've created space, right? You've created a space where people can come and gather and have meaningful conversations about different things. And that's what... Um, that's what I think is a good overlap between what we're doing because this is what I try to do as well with all things narrative is we say that we're creating spaces for stories to be told uh, and stories to be lived more meaningfully. And so trying to explore how to do that and what that's like. So so yeah, so Jacob, thank you so much for being on the All Things Narrative podcast. I will put in the show notes links to uh, the things you mentioned as well of where to find you on YouTube. Probably won't put your phone number in there. <laughs> <laughs> but I want you to hopefully nobody spams you or anything, but, but, um, yeah, so people can get connected with you and, uh, yeah, I definitely, uh, want to have you on again. And, um, if, uh, if you haven't already those listening, uh, I got to be on Jacob's channel, uh, as well. And I'm sure we'll have more conversations because it's just, it's just fantastic. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's great one of the great things about the internet is that you can find people and just connect with them so easily so thank you jacob for making that possible for people thank you don't forget to check out that patreon page that's in the show notes uh just getting that up and running but if you want to support what i'm doing here at all things narrative check that out thank you so much and until next time take care